happy Tuesday afternoon, everyone. Um, I think this is working. Yes, totally is. Um, so, happy Tuesday afternoon, everyone. This is Stuff, Things in the News. We have a great panelist, today, or a great set of panelists today. We have David Goldstone and Cindy Hannon. Hi, guys. How's it going? Hey, going good. I'm very good as well. All right, so we're going to open the show because both of these two are complete international relations buffs. Um, we're going to open the show with uh, what Russia and Turkey are up to recently because that's that's without a doubt, um, well, it's it's a bundle of fun. And then we're going to move on to what happened in uh, Chicago with the police shooting and sort of work into racism in the United States as well as sort of the environmental impact of Microsoft buying a whole bunch of land in the forests of Nisqually region. They bought 150 acres if I'm not mistaken. So, but first we're going to start with uh, Russia and uh, Russia, Syria and Turkey. Guys, who wants to explain it first? Okay, I guess I'm taking that. Hi, everyone. My name is Cindy. I'm the public relations officer for Model United Nations here at UW. Uh, so as probably you've heard about, uh, Syria and Turkey have had a bit of a problem on the borders. Uh, so Turkey shot down a Russian uh, Russian warplane and Ru Russia claims it was in Syria. Turkey claims it was in Turkey. And but so this, this is where it becomes a problem because Turkey is a member of NATO. And so NATO, they have NATO's backing. Except, I mean, nobody wants to get in a fight with Russia. I mean, Napoleon showed us that one pretty quickly. Um, so one pilot died uh, in the crash afterwards, and the, uh, a marine, a Russian marine, died rescuing the other pilots. Uh, obviously, Russia is furious, and they claim that Turkey did not give any warning or very little warning. Turkey claims that they gave ten warnings, but they also said that the uh, war flight was in Turkey for approximately seventeen seconds. So that's not a whole lot of time to give ten warnings, unless you're, you know, copy pasting it into a chat speak. Uh, so that's fun. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna poke some holes into Turkey first because well we're gonna poke some holes into both sides of the theory first. First of all, um, if a Russian warplane were flying from Syria to to uh, Russia, which is you know what they've been doing since they've been bombarding ISIS and rel uh, the other anti-Assad anti anti-Assad anti groups, Russia is kind of indiscriminate about who they're targeting as long as they're against the Assad regime, which is a big problem the U.S. and other NATO groups have. Which is fair. Russia, for example, is, or for instance, is pro-Assad, while NATO is completely anti-Assad, and they're trying to prop up someone else. Tur Turkey is very anti-Assad. NATO is not his biggest fan, but they wouldn't use a, st a strong language as Turkey would. Uh, Turkey also is funding a group, uh, groups of Turkmens. Turkmens are not Turkish. They are like they're related to people from Turkey, but they're not. Turkish people, but they still have a lot of support from Turkey. They're being funded and trained by Turkey to fight Assad's regime. And Russia's been kind of bombing some Turkmen groups and tribes, and that's obviously not helping the uh, the currently strained relationship that actually happened. That's been happening before this jet was shot down, so that's something that's been going on. So Russia's been having this strained relationship with Turkey, right, uh, David? Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely correct. Um, the some of the bigger problems uh, that have been going on with this uh, conflict in general uh, that Russia has been sort of incur incurring uh, in treating on 
uh, Turkish airspace for over a little bit over the past two weeks. In fact, uh, la- uh, last Monday, they were the a Turkish airplane or sorry, a Russian airplane was actually escorted by two Turkish F-16s out of a Turkish airspace. They were in a uh, Turkish airspace, I believe, for around 17 minutes. NATO, um, NATO in- also has officially warned Russia about uh, infringing on borders recently yeah. before, before it was shot before the jet was shot down. Yeah, yeah. So this uh, this conflict or this conflict has sort of uh, uh, been boiling to a uh, been boiling to a flashpoint uh, here for quite a, uh, for over the past couple of weeks, especially with uh, the more the more broadly uh, construed conflict of Russia and its support for Assad versus NATO and its sort of belief that uh, the Assad regime has to go um, at some point, along with the coalition uh, that's developed to fight ISIS. Uh, there in Syria. So I guess if, uh, one way to potentially look at this incident is considering that the uh, Turkish airplane that was, or sorry, the Russian airplane that was shot down was really only in Turkey for around 17 seconds. It's flying at 600 miles an hour. The point that it's going across is roughly two miles wide. Is a very small amount of time for um, uh for sort of any interaction. So it's very likely that a Turkish uh, fighter pilot was simply uh, in the heat of the moment, shot it, uh, shot an airplane down, and now we have sort of this, uh, this being the sort of the miscalculation that re- that reaches the flashpoint that allows us to sort of really interrogate uh, the Russian versus NATO conflict that's embroiled in Syria. One thing I've seen though is that uh, it was not just one jet that was there in that airspace. There was a second jet, and the second jet uh, listened to the Turkish warnings and left the airspace, but the first jet did not, and that's the one that was shot down. So, so let's get this straight, though. Um, this this Russian airplane air, airplane was flying the the fighter or the the, air, the military aircraft was flying through this two mile strip of Turkey at six, some six hundred miles an hour, right? Um, and there was only seventeen seconds. Now, for that sort of speed to have happened, it was that's a very small narrow of time. Is it plausible that the Turkish fighter pilot would have been have to have been either waiting for the Russian pilot or chasing him? in just literally waiting for the correct moment and if did the russian pilots land in turkish were they in turkey when they were shot down yeah so uh the turkey routinely uh, scrambles jets when uh russia airplanes fly close to its border so it's uh, pretty plausible that these jets were keeping a watchful eye as i noted like on monday the two turkish aircraft actually uh, escorted a russian uh a jet incurring or incur occurring on its territory um, out of the airspace. So it's likely that this was a similar uh, case. And the Russian pilot, uh, the missile connected with the Russian aircraft over Syrian territory um, and the Russian pilot or and the Russian uh, pilot or co-pilot, they both ended up in Syrian territory as well. So and, and then they were shot down. They were essentially defenseless when they were shot in the sky, correct? Well, the while they were parachuting, uh, they successfully uh, uh, parachuted out of the airplane. However, a uh, likely a group of Turkmen on the Syrian border uh, did shoot at uh, um, both members of the or both members of the aircraft that were parachuting and uh, were able to kill one. The other was able to escape. So, uh, I guess if you call that defenseless, yes, that's probably the case. Do do we? So these Turkmen are associated with Turkish uh, military forces, correct? Uh, in a, they're not associated with. Turkish military forces. It's um, it more similar to how some uh, countries sponsor um, Kurdish groups. Uh, they're not. So Turkmen are related. Like I said, they're related 
like historically to Turkey, um, but they're not they're not Turkish citizens, nothing like that, and they're not ostensibly identified with their military. But also speaking of the Kurds, uh, one else another problem is uh, Russia has been creating closer ties with Kurdish groups as of late, which is also not pleasing to Turkey as they have a long-standing history of hatred going on there. Um, uh, what I was going to touch on, if, for example, so so because this wasn't technically a member of the Turkish military that shot the pilot out of the sky, well, so, shot the pilot from parachuting. Okay, but Turkey did shoot the jet. Yeah, so... Turkish air, air Turkey shot the jet in the in the sky, but it was a non-member of the Turkish military who shot the pilot out of the sky. The pilot himself, yeah, that's correct. Or, that's correct. or we think that's true. So this would technically not be a violation of the Geneva Convention. Well, here you take this one. So the uh, the Geneva Convention definitely uh, does not. Uh, or generally does not permit uh, shooting down uh, other air, other folks' airplanes. Uh, so I think uh, I uh, no, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with this one. I don't think that's gonna gonna apply to this in this case. Turkey, I mean, Russia does have grounds for being angry. I understand, but I understand both sides, especially with repeated border infringements from Russia. I can and all this other history, like coming up to this uh, bombing of Turkmen's. And I'm like the Assad regime is a lot of what's at the heart of it because they're both technically on the side of fighting ISIS, but how they interpret that seems to be somewhat different. And and we've noticed that France has redoubled its efforts uh, to to bombarding ISIS in, in since the Paris attacks. Is it is there a chance that this like France? President Hollande has been running from state to state trying to get more people to commit and even the Philippines sent their latest warplane over to uh, over to Syria to sort of help the crusade against ISIS and uh, this sort of uh, Islamic state. Is it is it possible a couple weeks ago Noah and I talked about that there's probably no way that the Russians and the Western world can agree but is it possible that the Russians will be brought closer to the table with this sort of uh, this sort of relationship with Turkey now, or is Turkey moving Russia further away from the West because of its coalition with NATO? So I guess uh, I think it's uh, should probably try and steer away from uh, talking about this as a crusade against ISIS, as sort of evokes old oh, memories yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, uh, apology. But beyond uh, beyond that, I think that uh, the what the larger scheme of sort of the international real politic uh, that we're trying to get at is. Um, is as I was mentioned, sort of really briefly at the beginning, that this is sort of being escalated by the politicians. There is a competing um, sort of will to power in the Middle East over who's going to be creating the um, who's, who's going to be creating the post the world order post ISIS, and that uh, sort of broader conflict occurs with uh, sort of the NATO uh, or the NATO desire for. Uh, the Assad regime to really be out of there and sort of a Western uh, domination of the Middle East versus a more Russian domination. And so this uh, is sort of a who blinks first opportunity for both nations um, to see who is really going to be able to uh, uh, generate a little bit more of their uh, of sort of their will to power in the Middle East post this conflict. I'm going to take a, a little less theoretical approach um, and quote some just uh, the U.S. specifically on this topic. Uh, you, you mentioned Holland and 
bombing Syria and stuff. There's a lot to do with um, the world world order right now. Um, I mean, most of us still consider the U.S. the top of the world order. I mean, there's always arguments about is it shifting, who's there. But U.S. is still leading this big, uh, the coalition against ISIS at the moment, um, or uh, Daesh, as some people call them. Uh, and so U.S. has come, has released statements. Uh, Obama has said that Turkey has a right to protect itself. It's backing Turkey on this and says they have evidence that Russia was there and inside Turkish airspace. Um, and the U.S. has also said they've expressed worries about Russia's bombing in Syria. Um, they're worried about uh, prolonging the war in Syria and uh, exacerbating the refugee crisis happening right now. Um, so while there's a lot of there's a lot of calls to arms right now, it sounds like Obama is not particularly interested in leading like full on bombings. He's still they're still leading coalition, as mentioned, which is actually part of it's actually stationed in an airbase in Turkey, um, which is they've given to this U.S. like coalition. So the U.S. sounds like they just don't want as big of a scale as Russia wants. And so over this, this specific problem, I think the U.S., wants Russia to tone it down. So they're, I think they're going to involve them because they have to, not because they necessarily want to or because they approve of their strategies. I'm going to I'm going to pose a geographical question here. Where are where is Russia launching its bombing missions from? Are they launching it from um, from Crimea or further south towards like Georgia and North Abkhazia in Krasnodar or so they actually uh, – the Assad regime has given a Russian airbase in Syria um, that they're launching most of their attacks from, I believe. I don't know the exact geographic location of that airbase. Um, I, I think I remember it. Um, it's uh, on the western uh, side of Syria. That's part of the reason they're such big supporters of Assad. They get, there's a lot of deals between Russia and Assad. There's also a lot of deals between Russia and, Russia and Turkey. Um, that's one of the problems is Turkey gets 60% of their natural gas from Russia. And there's lots of calls for um, like blocking imports and exports between them. Uh, they've blocked imported Turkey from Turkey into Russia. So that's exciting. Uh, sending a message there clearly. Um, and also there's a, a joint pipeline that were, they were in the talks from uh, to transport oil and natural gas. And that seems to have been halted at this moment. And and we can't forget a, a lot of uh, Russian engineering projects. They were also building a nuclear power plant. Um, we and the, Nick Demuro he, he he mentioned that Russia has banned the um, has has made it not may get, told the Russian Premier League clubs for for soccer. They've told them they can't buy any Turkish players, which FIFA wouldn't allow. But I can't imagine any Russian clubs going directly against Putin. It won't it won't end well. That's sort of those the owners of these Russian clubs are not going to, to you know fortunately there aren't many turkish soccer players at that level of uh, soccer but it's still it's still you know a, a very big publicity hit it's, or it is a it is a large publicity hit on the uh, forum of entertainment they've also uh released statements to uh, russian tourists saying that they should not travel to turkey because it is dangerous as there are many terrorists in turkey um, and so that's obviously making a statement right there. Uh, and so a lot of uh, tourism groups have canceled like group packages to Turkey because it's a it's warm. A lot of they have like millions of Russian tourists go to Turkey every year. It's a big tourism industry. Yeah, this uh, sort of economic uh, battle that's been brewing between uh, Russia and Turkey definitely has uh, 
a number of sort of different aspects as we've already highlighted like the um, nuclear uh, reactor project is around 22 billion uh, US dollars that Russia was going to be invested along with the uh, threats to sort of cut the um, the oil pipeline from the uh, Caucasus all the way um, to sort of the Balkans in Europe. That's called the Turkish Stream. It was uh, created after uh, the uh, new Ukrainian government came in uh, this past year. Uh, that was sort of the South Stream. Uh, Russia was trying to sort of get around um, Get the reach the oil markets without uh, while imposing the economic sanction on Ukraine, and the, ultimately this sort of trade war that seems to be developing is probably going to be bad for both sides. I mean, the Russia gross domestic product is probably going to be is estimated to be going down three point eight percent this year, so they're really going into a hefty recession. And Turkey hasn't been doing that much better either. They're, uh, they've had some nine nine to ten percent growth over the past five years, um, and this year they're only expected to grow at around three point one percent. So we've got a lot of sort of these economic problems that are potentially going to be exacerbated uh, by this uh, halting the trade. And uh, these economic problems oftentimes lead to these uh, cases of cyclical violence uh, in these poor areas of Turkey, especially the East. Yeah, and and I I there's some echoes of things that I remember uh, when I was living in Croatia. We would have these. Uh, there was one winter when it was frigid, and uh, Russia was in negotiations with Ukraine about the natural gas pipeline, and Croatia was getting a lot of their natural gas and oil from from Russia to this region of the world. And it was it was cold, and we didn't we didn't have natural gas in the schools. Like it, there was no heating in the schools for you know three four days before Croatia was like or the entire region was like. Please, please turn the heat back on, please. So you're seeing all these sorts of things that sort of led up to the Ukrainian crisis, except this time Turkey's – well, you're seeing these sort of long-term steps, things that would lead up to the Ukrainian crisis if you saw it 10 years ago, um, except this time Turkey's a part of NATO. It's a little bit more frightening. Well, also, it's I, it, it can be – there's a lot of implications like what the extreme could be, which is which is frightening, but at the same time – Russia has not pulled their ambassador from Ankara yet, the capital of Turkey. So that's always a good sign. And they're both uh, Putin and uh, the president of uh, Turkey, whose name I'm forgetting at this moment. Do you have it? Uh, no, I'm trying to blank uh, no, as well. That's it's embarrassing. Okay. Anyways, they're both uh, in Paris right now for the UN uh, uh, climate summit. So I know Obama has asked them both to meet. And so that's been going on this week. So hopefully they can come to some agreements. We've, we've, uh, if, in case you're following. Oh, it's Erdogan. Um, <laughs> uh, Erdogan is uh, is a sort of autocratic ruler of Turkey right now. He's not exactly the, he he's not he's the democratically elected candidate. Yes, is he is he a nice guy? Uh, not not the best of people in the world. Not the best of friends. Um, and he's he's cited often as one of the main reasons Turkey isn't joining the EU yet because he the EU we've discussed this before is more a, a normative power. You can't join the EU unless you're culturally sound and and at this point in time turkey tortures people turkey goes out of its way to sort of quell rebellions in a way that the eu doesn't want one of its member states sort of doing the way they quelled the kurds and the way they're sort of doing things that isn't the eu way i'm doing quotation marks with my fingers i don't know why um um but it's it's these there are worsening relations and russia russia is despite their economic 
recession, um, they're, they're still, they still command quite a bit of power on at least the European stage, if not on the stage of the world, especially as, as we're going into a more... Well, Russia and the Middle East have always had a thing. I mean, like 1980s, Afghanistan, everything. I mean, Russia's always been an important player in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, I mean, and then the Americans walked in. Iraq is cited as the graveyard of empires. Is is that? I think that's a term. Or Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, all of these sorts of people fall apart at the same point. But um, the, the question is, how are either of these countries going to proceed past this i understand that the president of turkey and the president of uh, russia are both in paris at the same uh, at the same time to talk about climate change but this is this isn't this is a very large issue that definitely requires more than one day of sitting in a room um, and it's not just an issue between russia and turkey this is an issue in between russia and nato something of the likes we haven't seen in a long time uh, the last time russia and Tur- russia had an issue with nato was when uh, well, when Poland went to the advisory board and asked for help from NATO just in case Russia decided to go past Ukraine, just in case they decided to go by suppressed Crimea. That's the last time since the end of the Cold War. Is there any sort of drastic action we can expect? Um, so I, I tend to take the less extreme view of things, I suppose. Um, when I, I see something like this, and I, it could be bad, and you look at the media and they're Talking about a BBC is just exploding with articles if you want to do some more research on your own for this type of topic. Um, it is an important thing that's happened. This jet being shut down. There's a lot of potential issues that can arise from this. And what's Russia putting sanctions on Turkey is one step that you don't see taken very often. Um, so I was actually surprised that Russia took that step. Um I don't think it's going to lead to all-out war. I think we're probably, U.S. isn't going to get dragged into Turkey versus Russia. Uh, thank goodness for that. Um, I don't know, what do, you, what do you think? Do you have any more? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> as you're uh, probably aware, uh, I tend to take a little bit of the more long-range uh, look at it. And uh, I guess to sort of to return back to the uh, NATO uh the Russia power conflict that Timmy uh, just mentioned. I think uh, uh, this sort of comes back to the hoop links first uh, game. It, it really depends upon whether uh, Turkey is going to trigger uh, NATO Article 5, which requires um, uh, defensive support from all the other NATO members, and whether Russia is willing, um, whether the United States and other NATO members are willing to back that up. So that would be the that would be the internal link to a lot of the conflict that uh, we might be wor- or that anyone might be worried about long term. Personally, I think that the United States is probably very unlikely to um, support. Uh, Turkey in the event that Turkey does call for NATO Article 5. Um, and I think Turkey also is aware of this diplomatically, and I think it'll probably come down to Turkey blinking and apologizing for shooting down to the shooting down the fighter plane. One thing that we, I guess we haven't really brought up entirely is, I mean, we, we've mentioned it in passing, is uh, like this is Syria and the role it plays between these two countries. And I like we we talk, we've discussed like you know like a war between Turkey and Russia. I'm more concerned about the actions that they'll play out in Syria because as we mentioned they have a lot of tension there because Russia's bombing Turkmens who Turkey are invested in they're both on either sides of Assad and ISIS and so it's it's very interesting to see how if they can't take it out on each other how they will take it out Russia supporting the Kurds more and bombing more Turkmens 
And then Turkey is not supporting the Kurds, even though they're one of the leading groups against ISIS and doing a lot, getting a lot of groundwork. Kurds are not even allowed to um, be in certain areas near the border of Turkey. And the U.S. has supported that so far, is that Kurds can't fight ISIS in areas near the Turkish border in some cases because Turkey's worried about them coming into Turkey. So that's kind of crazy. It's like you'd rather have ISIS near your border than you'd rather have the Kurds. Um, but I guess for Turkey, that matters more. So I guess we'll see how we'll see how this plays out. I, I am worried about increased fighting in Syria because of this, though. All right, guys, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Uh, since it's December 1st, I'm going to play a little bit of Christmas music. But um, before that, uh, we have our standard announcements. We have a whole bunch of talented bloggers. Make sure you go on rainy, uh, blog.rainydog.org to check it out. Um, all sorts of fun things in there good writers um if you want to listen to us on the go it's rainydog.org you can listen to us anytime we have a tune in radio app as well um there's a uw my my uw mobile app on your iphones or androids you can find classrooms textbooks the works try to get into that winter course if you still haven't done it i wish you the very best of luck but um there's notify.uw.edu and if you really still don't like your parents but you should have gotten over that since last week uh space scout uw.edu also lets you know which classes um which classrooms are empty so you can study in and last but not least like us on facebook instagram the twitter um i don't know i have a facebook page too it's stuff things in the news and and wait for it we have a podcast um if you like us and if i finally figure out how to do this and i should do by the end of the today um make sure you download our podcast off the itunes store or it's timmy.bendis.com slash stan.xml anyway we're going to be right back after irving berlin's white christmas Oh 
Hey guys, we're back. Merry Christmas. Uh, December 1st. I work in retail, so I really have no sympathy for any of you. Um, but we're going to talk about what just happened in Chicago. They released the video of uh, a black teenager that was shot one year ago, almost to the day. And it's it's quite, it's 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 very graphic. I'm not going to play it. Um, you, you can watch it. Uh, just look up Chicago Police Shoots Teenager. Um, but... It's essentially there was a teenager with a knife who was running and the cops ha, cops have been called because because it they he, he was running around the neighborhood with a knife. But this 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 teenager was running away from the cops. It, it, he wasn't running very quickly, mind you. He was simply running away. And at one point he he put his knife down. And veered away from the police officer, at which point the Chicago police officer shot him 16 times in the back, more or less. Um, <laughs> we, you know, there there's a lot of there's a lot of negative things that happen on this world, but uh, it's it's the first time a Chicago police officer has been charged with uh, murder, first degree murder in. 34 years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he he's already out of jail because he posted his $1.5 million bond. He, he posted $150,000 because that's what you need to post to get out of jail. This is someone that killed someone in cold blood who, who, who regardless of race, and not even regardless of race, because of race, because they were afraid of... I don't know. Um, it's it's because of they were they were afraid of someone running away. I, I I cannot put I cannot empathize with this police officer. I as a human being cannot for one single second sit there and say this police officer did the right thing. He was threatened. He he should have shot. He should have used a warning shot. He he should have he should have murdered this teenager in cold blood. I cannot for one second empathize with something so cruel. I can't empathize with any murderer, any serial killer. I can't empathize with any of this. I can't empathize with the fact that this teenager was shot 16 times and that someone went to Colorado Springs, shot up a Planned Parenthood, and made it out alive at all. I, I do not... I, I do not know how... how... that... how it was possible that someone who works in the public eye who is a public servant who who is tasked to protect this country and everyone that lives in this country everyone that lives that that works in this country regardless of what they were doing i cannot fathom what was going through his head when when he shot someone that was running away not once, not twice, not five times, not ten times, sixteen times, to the point where the body lied on the ground and was smoking. Smoking from the gunshots in him. Racism is a problem in this country. I am a white man. David is a white man. Cindy is a white girl. And we do not understand how you can do this to another human being. What, what Do you honestly think that you're better than this person because you... 
are a police officer, that you have been living in this country where there has been slavery, where the, there's been uh, abject lies for voting, where where black communities have been underrepresented, misrepresented, where they haven't been able to get jobs, have been fired first, hired last. They've been ostracized from police communities. They've experienced racism at work. We have so many people on this campus. We have people of all colors. We have people of different sex, sexual orientations. And, and we have people that should be able to empathize who, who in the last 10 years, in the last 50 years, in the last 200 years should have looked at themselves and said, how can we possibly look at ourselves and sleep at night after we did this? Not only sleep at night, not only sleep at night in jail, but sleep a night at home. How can we go into bed with our wives, with our girlfriends? How can we, with, with our significant others, how can we go home at night and look our children in the eye and say, I killed this man as he was walking away. I did the right thing. There is no way that Chicago as a city should get out of this without the officer pleading guilty. Without the officer saying, yes, he had a knife, but I was wrong. I killed this person in cold blood, not out of self-defense. I killed them because I was wrong. And there is not a lawyer in the world that should argue for even a single second who should advise to his client who did such a wrong thing so blatantly that he should get away with this, even for a moment. Um, it's, it happened a year ago. That's probably the worst part of all. This, did, this didn't happen last week. This didn't happen two weeks ago. This didn't happen a day ago. This happened a year ago in Chicago and they are releasing the video now. And I understand that the family of the victim was, was upset that they did not want this video released. I'm assuming that they saw the video before they said, we do not want this released, and they were pressuring not to get this released for the last year. I'm assuming that they knew what was on the video. I'm assuming they knew the state that their, their son was in. But I cannot picture the... I cannot imagine how they would have been satisfied with letting the police officer walk after they did something to their son and I cannot picture the pain the suffering the grief that is going not through just the family not through just just the neighborhood but through the entire city because something so institutionally wrong happened to one of their citizens um we're gonna engage in a yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to I was going to add to that that uh I think a lot uh as Timmy eloquently uh put it that there is definitely a lot of uh there's definitely a lot of wrong that has occurred over this past year with the uh, sort of failure to even uh really deeply indict uh what the police officers have uh uh what the Chicago police forces uh has been engaged in somewhat of a cover up um of this a hideous act. Uh, however, I think that uh, that we can take um, we 
can take a little bit more of an analytical approach and uh, try and sort of uncover um, some of the problems that we may be uh, encountering here. I think that uh, a good or uh, perhaps a, a reasonable uh, attribute to sort of why this situation uh, occurred could be pinned down to a sort of institutional racism within uh, the police force at large. There's um, to sort of take a step back from the situation, the situation the police officer, police officers are unfortunately trained to be put into every day is really that of a uh, threat construction versus non-threat construction uh, sort of mentality. That is, is this person going to shoot at me or um, is this person safe? It's sort of the police officer's safety comes first um, sort of training. At least that's the way I understand uh, most uh, the way most of the training goes on uh, uh, currently. Uh, this uh, has the effect of sort of re-entrenching this sort of uh, threat versus non-threat uh, dichotomy inside the brain and these sort of uh, reoccurring neural pathways, um, unfortunately, uh, reinforce. And it turns out that uh, between the sort of the receptors uh, behind the eyes, the uh, cones and rods, and sort of the, analyze, the briefly analyze the information that comes into them, and the amygdala, which is sort of the, emo the emotional intelligence part of the brain, the pathway between between that, uh, between those two objects in the brain, and sort of the an alternate route through the ration, rational processing center, is around um, a hundredth of a second faster. So this means that any time a person instinctively constructs that flight or fight response through the perception of a threat, they're always it's going to be really hard to get out of that because they're sort of being emotionally hijacked. So the so ultimately, it's less. I think. I guess if we were to try and pin the problem less onto the, um, into sort of working out a change, it's perhaps less of a problem of the the off, the particular officer that we've seen engaged in terms of that they're simply responding to the stimuluses that they've been trained to do, and more perhaps the problem of the way that the police officers are currently being trained. Yeah, and and David's right. It is it is a problem with how our public servants are being trained, um, and and it is it is reassuring that uh, the the police officer uh, it's Jason Van Dyke who's thirty seven years old. Uh, it is reassuring that his fellow police officers also did not fire um it's it's not reassuring that they didn't pull him back but it's 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 one of these sorts of things uh and it's and it's a problem we have in this country that's it's fairly unique um how do you solve racism at at a city level at a state level at a at a whole country level uh i'm of the belief that it's incredibly difficult to solve such an issue on a giant federal level as an overbranching authority, and that if if we wait for everyone to get in, the entire the entire federal government to get in line and figure out what they want to do, that it'll be far far too late, and we'll wait for far far too long before things are actually undertaken. So, gathering the facts, gathering that, I, I'd argue that we should work, no matter how hard it is, we should work on uh, improving how how we react to certain situations how we train our public servants how we how we do things on a city level instead first yeah i think that there's uh, definitely a good uh uh, there are definitely a lot of benefits to micropolitics over the uh, macropolitics. Just some per, uh, 
the particular instance that uh, obviously a lot of the United States Congress is predominantly white and male, which means that it's really hard to root out that um, potentially uh, institutional racism, whereas the, at the micro-political level, a lot of the power can be levied over uh, sort of city uh, uh, city councils and uh, other sort of civic uh, security forces simply through the uh, uh, ability to elect uh, politicians on a yearly basis and sort of voice that opinion on the on sort of a very more on a more proximal level is it is it possible do you think to to implement what what would be the steps we would have to hypothetically this is this is a thought of experiment i've been sort of uh, conjuring throughout the day today hypothetically how do you solve what are the steps you need to take to solve this sort of institutional racism on on a local level so hypothetically you are the mayor of Seattle and the city council loves and adores you and think you're the best thing since sliced bread. Um, what is what is the what is the first step? Because uh, first of all, we were encountered with several problems. Um, one, a large proportion of the black community, at least in Seattle, is of or at, at the very least in Seattle, is a member of the lower class. And there's this sort of institutional racism. Uh, the lower class as a whole, as like it, more, it is more likely that a member of the lower class will participate in illegal activities in uh, to get by from day to day because they're simply not provided with with enough means to do to live to survive. So we're presented with this problem that a majority of the black community is in the lower class, but we're also presented with a problem that the white police, not just in um, Chicago, not just in L.A., but it seems to be an institutional problem that the white police will react more violently to a black member of the community. So perhaps is the first step we, – we hear a lot about body cams, body cams for police officers to sort of increase accountability. But it's perhaps a better step and a more reasonable step to sort of implement a CCTV sort of system like they have in London. Do you think that would solve the problem better? Well, I guess uh... – <laughs> I think that the uh, I think there's a couple potential. I think that both of those are definitely uh, good ideas and steps forward. I don't know if they'll necessarily uh, solve the entirety of sort of this institutional racism problem that um, we're highlighting in this particular discussion. Uh, I think that this. Uh, institutional racism probably comes at more of the cultural level. I think it's, I don't know if there's necessarily a policy that you can enact to a change that it's perhaps more of a mentality um, shift that needs to occur. Uh, I think if a person, I think if any of any single sort of policy effort that can be taken, I think that um, perhaps the sort of the reactionary uh, uh, the reactionary tendency of the our current police forces uh, definitely sort of incentivize this uh, sort of threat construction mindset that causes that potentially um, entrenches a lot of this racism and I th- perhaps a more proactive uh, way of addressing a local um, policing such as walking more beats and really interacting with the community I know that there's um, especially in uh, 
I'm forgetting which particular neighborhoods of New York, but I know that in some of the neighborhoods, um, the boroughs of New York, they approach policing in a very different sense of where they have officers actually walking the streets and interacting with the people in their community. And that seems to, uh, and the studies that they've uh, done off that demonstrate there's a far there's far less incarceration. There's also far um, far le- uh, far lower levels of homicide and uh, other petty forms of violence because of that sort of community aspect of the law enforcement working with the community. So I think that's perhaps the most feasible way of addressing the policy. I see that makes sense. If you if you have a police officer that's there for 20, 30 years in the same community and watch these kids grow up, the the kid is going to be less likely to offend because he doesn't he he sort of looks up to this sort of uh, this respectful figure in the community that that assumes, however, that the police officer is well trained and is a respectful member of the, uh, a, a member of the community that that um, that inspires respect as opposed to someone who who is cruel. I've heard of um, I've heard of a police officer and I don't know who and I, it's on hearsay, really. But a police officer who was in the Rainier Valley and who was cruel to his uh, uh, to part of his beat. So. So how do you inspire sort of accountability and how do you how do you train police officers better? Do we think it's a longer sort of training process, better teachers, more? I know one of the problems is there simply isn't enough police officers in Seattle. And there, there's been some support for making a Seattle-only police academy, but it simply hasn't been enough. How do we inspire more police or how do we make it so police are more accountable? Well, I'm going to have to plead ignorance on to that one. I'm not, I don't know, uh, I don't know if I could uh, pin down a couple of good answers that would, uh, that would make any coherent sense. No, that's totally fair. Um, The second sort of thing we have to tackle is that uh, more often than not, the members of the uh, lower class community aren't as well educated as members of the higher classes, uh, upper classes, because regardless of your sort of... um, Regardless of where you are, if you're a member of the upper class and there's an excellent private school in the area and you have the money to send your kid to a private school, and you have the money and the ability to send your child to a private school to give them a better education, you're probably going to do that. You're going to want to provide as much as you can for your child. But for a lot of the members of the lower class community, this isn't simply possible. They don't have the money to send their kids to the private school. So they go to a a terrible public school or a mediocre public school. And and sometimes they end up going directly from uh, high school or even middle school directly into the streets and end up in prison. Is Do we think, uh, is the prison system in Washington State or in the United States as a whole inherently flawed. Do we think that might sort of contribute to solving this? Well, uh, to to address the first point of uh, sort of the education dichotomy, uh, speaking as a a person who's attended private school uh, back for uh, his entire life before coming to the University of Washington, I definitely acknowledge that there is a, a large discrepancy between the education um, at private schools versus uh, that and particularly sort of uh, some of the lesser uh, some of the less uh, well kept up uh, public schools um, across the nation. Uh, I think that perhaps there's obviously this point has been debated for uh, aeons now, but I think perhaps a good uh, way to attempt to solve this that Washington State has recently advocated for is definitely um, adding a little bit more competition. Uh, 
to the public schools. Um, I think uh, uh, definitely some trial charter schools that are currently sparking up are good ways of uh, sort of figuring out what are new and better methods for uh, educating the public and letting uh, sort of the people vote with their uh, vote with their feet at that point. Um, for the second point on sort of uh, criminal justice system and its biases, uh, I think that. Uh, we've definitely we've definitely come a long ways from sort of the uh, origins of the, the criminal justice system, say back in um, the early Enlightenment, or even sort of before the Enlightenment, where it's sort of a declaration of sovereignty over the body um, and sort of any challenges that arise from that, uh, the sort of imposition of these uh, sort of terrible uh, terrible crimes and retribution for violation. Um, and we've come a long ways, but it's sort of a re-entrenched um, itself, or the sort of the violence against the individuals has perhaps re-entrenched itself uh, through a, a popular theory called biopower, which says it's the ability of the government to control life. Um, in particular, sort of the idea of the panopticon that we have the, the government through the criminal justice system is sort of attempting to control um, the behavior of all individuals um, through sort of this uh, penalty and sort of the reform nature of the criminal justice system, trying to tell individuals the way that they ought to live um, their lives and sort of uh, reforming. Uh, the goal, the more goal of reforming. So I think that this, what this comes down to is, uh, again, back to the government is the and the way that it construes people that are um, sort of uh, uh, that it chooses to target. And I think that a lot of times that it's these African um, African American communities that don't necessarily live in the standard the standard way that a lot of the the normative. United States has, and that is the force, that's the driving force of sort of this um, institutionalism that causes, or that attempts to, that attempts at a larger level to incarcerate these individuals and also sort of change their ways. Yeah. Um, the last sort of thing we're going to work at, look at is the concept of gentrification. Um, what happens if you invest too much into a community that, that uh, you invest too much into the school, you invest too much into the infrastructure, into the, into the idea of uh, investing money into this community will help it grow. And then as a side effect, you accidentally sort of shoo the people away because they simply can't afford to live in the community anymore. But um, we're going to talk for like 10 seconds about how Microsoft recently bought a a slice of land in the Nisqually Forest because we both prepped on that and we we'd <laughs> like to talk about it we sort of got carried away but um Microsoft bought this 150 acre swath of land in 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 the Nisqually Forest, and they're not planning on developing a new corporate campus because that would be horrid. Um, but they're they're bought they bought this land because Microsoft, for years and years and years, is one of the only companies, if not the only company of its size, that is carbon neutral. Now, this is this is because Microsoft mostly works in the software business, and they don't really you know use fossil fuels all that much, except to power you know computers. But that's realistically not that much of a cost as opposed to say Halliburton. Um, the the trouble is that Microsoft, with the sort of advent of cloud computing, has has required more fossil fuels, and it's it can't sort of take advantage of the fact that it can have green buildings and stuff like that. They they need to sort of take buy these carbon offsets, David. Yeah. So um, 
I guess the what research I've uh, done sort of indicates that Microsoft purchased around uh, or indirectly purchased around 520 acres of land in the uh, Carbon River Valley. Um, Their main goal, again, as Timmy was saying, is to really create a carbon neutral um, to or become more carbon neutral to offset sort of the data, their data, their cloud computing data centers um, that are uh, use a lot or that emit a lot of carbon dioxide as a part of the cooling process. And so they've purchased this, these 520 acres is roughly the equivalent of purchasing around 37,000 credits, which is the equivalent of taking carbon credits, which is the equivalent of taking around 6,000 cars um, off the road. And we'll just note that one carbon credit is equal to one ton of carbon dioxide uh, removed from the atmosphere. And so the way this credit system generally works is they calculate the amount of they calculate sort of the amount of carbon that these trees on the land would have stored if they were under normal um, sort of logging uh, routine, which Hancock uh, Timberlands was the original is the original owner of this uh, piece of property, a uh, forest property, and they were planning on they generally cut down the trees every forty years or so in order to ensure that um, they have lumber to provide for building houses and whatnot. Uh, across the United, across the United States, and so uh, they old growth trees. It turns out, o- older than forty years, tend to uh, take in more carbon uh, dioxide um, per per sort of uh, year as they simply get older. So this amounts to a, f- a significant uh, carbon dioxide reduction from the atmosphere when you add it all up. It's also the Carbon River Project is interestingly enough the home of some of two endangered species, the spotted owls and uh, marbled murrelets, which are a, a type of ocean-going seabird. So there's a lot of sort of benefits potentially from Microsoft establish, continuing to establish itself as a carbon-neutral company, sort of as an s- excellent demonstration of being a steward of the environment that we all live in, plus the um, benefits of saving or of helping these endangered species get a get a um, remain tenable but but my my main question is is Microsoft doing anything to this land so the way the uh, the way that this purchase process works they've actually um, what they actually do is they donate these funds to a uh, to a trust so they get those funds so they get this um, the amount of money that they spent, which is undisclosed amount, um, they get to wipe that off of their taxes as a tax deduction. Um, then the trust is going to use that money uh, to purchase the land from Hancock Forests, um, use that money also to re, uh, to restore the ecosystem of that land, and then they'll uh, give Microsoft the equivalent of the tax credits. So Microsoft can then either decide to sell on the tax credit, um, on the carbon tax credit market, possibly for a nice profit, or they can use to um, remain carbon neutral, which would allow them to decrease their taxes taxes even further. So it's potentially a win-win for the, both the environment and for Microsoft decreasing its tax burden. All right, but we're not going to see companies like ExxonMobil or um, Shell um, perhaps buy a massive amount of these, tar- uh, like donate a massive amount towards these forests and stuff, and then suddenly pick up a whole bunch of tra- tax credits and say, hey, we're carbon neutral too. Is there a cap on this? Uh, so the way the I don't know if the... Washington State in particular has well, yes, they did. Washington State has a, uh, a carbon tax credit. I'm not entirely certain if they've got a um, 
exchange within the state, but the California State Exchange allows companies to um, purchase uh, tax credits from other uh, from other uh, corporations that have uh, compiled a bunch of these for um, potentially for profit reasons or potentially for um, uh, potentially just simply along the way that they structure their their business ethics. Inter- interestingly enough, uh, I don't really. It would be very challenging, obviously, for a company like ExxonMobil to purchase enough land to uh, become carbon neutral. And I believe the policy, at least uh, carbon tax credits, are only policies in certain states, such as Washington and California, not widespread. And ExxonMobil is also not headquartered in uh, Washington state. And the United States also has not signed the Kyoto Protocols, which establish um, each country as having a carbon carbon tax uh, cap. So with these uh, other companies, I don't know if we're going to see that sort of level um, of interrogation. All right. Um, we're going to call it a day. If next time you can send, you can send us an email to, what is it? What is it? It's mail.rainydog, or it's... Yo, DJ. Oh, it's DJ at rainydog.org. Or um, you can give us a call next week at 206-543-7675. I'm going to give it to Ben Holman, who will almost definitely change the song I put on because I have no idea who this is. But uh, he's going to do Rain City Raps for the next two hours. And, uh, guys, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much, David, for coming down. But um, we'll see you next week. We'll hope nothing terrible comes along. So we'll talk about, you know, what we plan on talking about three days in advance. Anyway, have a nice day guys my name is timmy that's david yeah, um, thanks. make sure you download our podcast it's stuff things in the news i'll have that up soon have a nice day